All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, you know, today I really didn't know what to do for the podcast. Uh, I was out of guests, out of ideas. But then I went down to collect the mail and I saw this guy doing walking lunges in the nearby, Dr. Mike Isratel. So, uh, Dr. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to, to get going again. I always like our discussions and I can't wait to have another really good one. Yeah, uh, amen to that. Um, let's hope it turns out well again. Uh, so far, you're never disappointed. And today, we sure enough have a really cool topic, which is how to get to the advanced stage as a lifter. But where I actually want to start is not on that topic. But I'll throw a couple of rapid fire type questions at you that I've been thinking about while preparing for this talk. And actually, just as we were chatting off air, you mentioned that uh, this time of the year where it's cold and dark outside and not too inspiring to go out and do all kinds of cool stuff is a really good time to do a lot of good work. So what I'd like to ask you is, um, you're obviously someone who creates a lot of intellectual material. I mean, you're pumping out books and um, digital products in rapid succession. So my question to you would be, have you gathered some useful insights over the years about how to make use of your creative juices in the best way possible? Yeah, well, that's a very interesting question. Um, I have to proceed my answer with the fact that I'm not an expert um, on productivity uh, or how to organize environments for productivity. You know, it could be, um, could be one of these situations where a lot of the tips I have are just wrong and I'm just, just sort of doing something else uh, that I don't know about. I'm lucky. But um, I haven't always been very productive. So and productivity has been a big challenge for me in the past, uh, especially because I um, had struggled with a pretty, pretty severe attention deficit disorder back in the day. And so I, I definitely know what it's uh, like to not be productive. So it's not something that just comes naturally to me or came naturally to me. So I do have some insights, especially for sort of deeply intellectual productivity. Uh, I'll have to say that the first insight is really, it sounds ridiculous, but it's know your stuff. You know, I think some people consider themselves intellectual producers before they have the necessary built up knowledge to synthesize anything worth knowing. Like, you know, I don't sit down and produce anything of value in the realm of art history or fashion design or auto mechanics because I have been sufficiently educated to have any sort of creativity that is worthwhile. It's uh, one of these things where creativity is very worthwhile once you have a lot of knowledge that allows that creativity to produce things that are fruitful rather than produce things that are wrong, uh, have already been produced better, or not produce anything at all. So I think a lot of you know how, how, how do you become creative and productive uh, there's a huge multi-year back end to that in which you learn stuff. And that for a long time in my education, I was not productive at all. I was so simply consumptive of as much knowledge as possible after synthesizing the knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, then some of that productivity actually becomes automatic. So what I mean by this is once you have learned a sufficient amount and granted that you have a sort of baseline uh, genetic proclivity for being creative, you just randomly think of stuff. Uh, right, the combinatorial mechanisms in your brain that come up with novel thoughts, if given a sufficient input of raw information, which your education should give you, will start to connect dots that haven't been connected before. So someone will say, you know, there's uh, fatigue is a definitely factor, and it's not infinite. And also, the more training volume you do, the better. 
And then, you know, at some point my brain happened to just probably pretty randomly connect the thoughts of like, well, is it like a point of fatigue where it means that training volume is no longer infinitely beneficial? Like, can you get to a point of fatigue where anything after that means more volume is bad? Right. And so there you go. There you go. MRV. Right. And it would have never made up the concept had I not known a significant amount about fatigue, known a significant amount about volume relationships with adaptation. And uh, then the rest is a little bit automatic. And so a, a lot of the ways in which one can be more creative is granted that they already know a lot of stuff. You know, when you sit down to try to attempt some sort of formalized creativity or block some time off for creativity, I think it's a good idea to have a, a pretty quiet scenario or one in which sort of ambient music is playing. Um, a relatively distraction-free environment, and that's a really good start because it allows you to think clearly. Um, I'll think a lot of the mental mindset should be one of a calm and one of peace and one of allowing the creativity to come forward and having an exploratory mindset. Let us let's create things and see where they go, not to um, put hindrances and limitations on thought until after the fact. And that's actually something uh, I think sort of insightful, potentially, if it's, if it's accurate. I think uh, intellectual production has to go in waves of two distinct phases, at least. Phase one is relatively unmitigated creativity, basically playing with ideas and just having the word vomit of ideas. Right? You just have idea, 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 and a bunch of them suck and a bunch of them don't make any fucking sense, but some of them are good. And then you uh, take that, let's say, hour of idea creation, and then you apply another, say, hour of intellectual rigor to it, where you apply formal rules and you test these ideas hypothetically, try to connect them together, try to connect them to the grant architecture of the rest of all the stuff you know, and see if they add up. And a lot of them won't, and some of them will. And so you basically have this sort of reproduction of ideas where ideas are created, and then you have a natural selection of ideas, or artificial in this case, where they're sort of bred out, they're exposed to logical rules and exposed to the harsh light of reality, and whichever ones survive can propagate to the next order of complexity. You say, okay, wow, this is an idea that really seems to work. It, it survived the first round of logical questioning. And then let's uh, try to uh, see how more complicated, how much more complicated or more intuitive or more um, expansive the idea can become. And then let's apply another round. Uh, people, I think, get caught into trying to apply the, the light of reason and um, logical rules at the same time as applying creativity. I think those tend to be, should be relatively distinct phases. Um, so I have a lot of ideas which end up being fucking stupid. I think it's I just don't share them on social media so I don't look stupid. <laughs> but trust me, I fucking come up with all kinds of dumb shit. Um, and then, you know, when you come up with dumb shit, write it down. Uh, if it's in a formal session of coming up with dumb shit, that's cool. A lot of times, a lot of my best ideas will come to me. Unfortunately, when I'm falling asleep, uh, just my mind will wander and it'll be very creative and I'll think of stuff and I go, oh, fuck, that's brilliant. So what I'll do is I always sleep with my phone next to me, I'll open up Notepad, I'll jot down the very basics of an idea, because once you jot down the very basics of the idea, the rest of it you can remember just fine. And then the next day or next week, I'll open up that document, I'll explore the ideas and try to apply the logic to them and be like, okay, this idea kind of actually doesn't work, or this idea works really well, and let's expand it. And then through successive applications of a creativity and the harsh rules that uh, sort of mitigate which parts of creativity were not productive and which ones are, you sort of grow this tree of uh, productive endeavors and productive logical structures, which can be applied to any avenue of life. So I think that um, that's kind of how stuff works. So when you're being creative, I think it's good to be, just be free with your thoughts, write a lot of them down, don't just think them in your head, uh, and don't judge yourself for having stupid thoughts, and, and then produce a lot, narrow it down, produce a lot, narrow it down, uh, and so on and so forth. I think uh, people that's, that are very intelligent, 
but to do, that are not sufficiently creative or, or sorry, not sufficiently creative of ideas that work. There are people who just don't do one of those two things very well. Like if you can't produce any novel ideas, it doesn't matter how smart you are. You're pretty sweet at critiquing other people's ideas, but you're not going to come up with any of your own. And if you come up with ideas and never manage to critique them logically or don't have the sufficient intelligence or uh, well, I suppose the sufficient knowledge to critique them logically, you're just going to come up with a raw hair brain, dumb shit, uh, which is nice, but it's a huge waste of your time and everyone else's time. So uh, I think those two factors playing together might be, I don't know, might be a, a decent thing to try. Again, not an expert on the subject. Yeah, so off of that, um, so if you want to produce a lot of high-quality material, even with all the background research beforehand, it's a pretty brain-intensive process. So uh, what would you find for yourself, like when you look at the totality of a work day, like how many creative, deep work-type hours are in there for yourself um, so is it all the eight working hours, just assuming that you're working eight hours a day, or is it four hours? Like, what would that number be for yourself? Well, that's, that's a good question. I don't know if I've uh, tried to formally assess that that sort of thing. Um, I will say that there, you know, once you have a pretty good idea, the uh, it's, it's hard to tell what part is creative. Um, the initial coming up of a good idea or the branching off of implications and connections to other ideas. You know, one of those is uh, not something you can predict really well. Like the creation of new ideas happens relatively outside of your control. Um, humans are uh, designed to think it happens with their control, but if you really introspect quite deeply and the brain uh, imaging literature confirms this very well, um, there's not like a you in there coming up with ideas. Ideas come up and then you sort of think you come up with them. Uh, so ideas happen. Then you're sort of in charge a little bit more to actively connect them to other ideas. And that part's not as hard. I mean, it doesn't require as much intellectual horsepower, so to speak. But then when you think about it, the, the first part doesn't either because it just sort of either comes to you or doesn't. Um, creativity is not uh, really a process that's even very difficult. Uh, it just it, it's, a, it's sort of organic, for lack of a better term. It just kind of happens. Um, and it, there's not much you could do. Uh, about being creative of sitting down and really sort of, you know, like furrowing your eyebrows together and be like, make shit, you know, uh, that kind of thing applies pretty well to scanning ideas for logical validity. And that part's also hard. It actually requires quite a bit of brain power to vet an idea. Uh, so, uh, it, so it's relatively effortless to come up with a new idea, relatively effortless or relatively easy to take that idea and connect it to other ideas, a little bit harder. And then I think one of the hardest things is to take that relatively complex idea and in every aspect of its interaction with other ideas and its internal interaction, you you shit test it. You say, okay, does this actually work? You work through the logical sequences. You generate implications, implications one through 10. How many of these actually line up with reality? Uh, that stuff can be pretty challenging. That takes a lot of work. And it's also egotistically a little bit insulting because you just have this brilliant fucking idea and then you have to like rip it to shreds. Remember, if you don't rip it to shreds, Somebody else will. And if they don't rip it to shreds, the economy uh, is doing real bad because then we have all sorts of really, really shitty ideas floating around. You know, I wish someone had ripped herbal teas and wraps and shit to shreds earlier. I hope that people came up with them, ripped them to shreds so they would have never fucking invented them. Um, so, so that process, so, so all of those processes added together, I suppose, take, you know, quite a bit of brain power. And that actually does generate a little bit of fatigue. Um, you kind of know you're fatigued when you're going through the motions of thinking but you know you're not really seriously analyzing much information anymore. And what I would say is this, sit down, uh, do some good thinking, do some good idea creation, create some stuff, uh, vet it a little bit, go through all those processes. And then when you start to get tired and your efficiency starts to drop quite a bit, there's actually no reason 
to hunker down and try to be like, ah, do it. It's almost like uh, junk volume in the gym. You know, like once you're done squatting and leg pressing and your quads are fried, like it's time to go home and rest and eat and then come back and fry them again next session. So I think that once you've exhausted your idea creation and idea vetting capabilities for any given time, then it's probably a good idea to, you know, back the fuck up and do some uh, rope work. You know, as always, you can always answer emails, right? And, and then that also has a variation effect where, you know, it's not, uh, it's something different. Um, just do, just doing idea creation and idea vetting can create quite a bit of staleness. And there actually is a little bit more deep insight is that when you are thinking about an idea for quite a long time, I would say several hours, you tend to develop a staleness relatively quickly. And that staleness isn't just a feeling of the, of the fact that you're like not making any progress and not getting any insights. It's actually the reality that you're no longer able to expand that idea out. You're no longer even able to analyze it very critically. You've sort of it's kind of lazily accepted it as dogma and your creativity is like, nah, right? It's really good to switch intellectual tasks or go do non-intellectual tasks altogether so that when you come back to it, you look at, at it with a fresh face. This, this works in lifting. This works in technique when you're doing uh, martial arts or soccer or sorry, football or anything like that. You learn a technique for a while and it starts to feel stale. You get away from that technique for a little bit. You come back to it. It, it feels fresh. You're able to see new angles of it and able to expand on it. So what I like to do is when I have a new idea or I'm working an idea for a while uh, and it starts to feel stale, I'll get away from it, do other kinds of work. I'll come back to it later that day a day later, two days later, a week later, so on and so forth. And then I'll see it with just, just crazy new vision and add to it, add to it, add to it, uh, subtract from it, subtract from it, subtract from it, morph it into something that's more correct. Like, for example, um, I just made the outline, 10 pages of outline for each chapter of the hyper, uh, scientific principles of, of hypertrophy text, which is going to be out you know, within probably a year or so. I sent those to Jared Feather and James Hoffman, my co-authors for the book, for them to shit test for me. And while they're shit testing it for two weeks. I keep coming back to it every now and again and re-looking at it and be like, oh, fuck, I got to add this. I got to add that. Ooh, this is stupid. I got to take it away. And then when I actually go and write the book, I'll change a bunch of stuff. And then they're going to edit the book. And when they're done editing, if they're going to send it back to me, I'm going to have another fresh look at it. So I think that refreshment uh, and, and variation in thinking is a really good thing. So I think my number one advice is like when you sit down, don't fuck around and just like be like a hippie free thinker, like whatever ideas come man, and smoke a bunch of pot and draw a bunch of circles and get nothing done, definitely you know, commit yourself to like, okay, I'm going to be thinking about this idea for a bit. Let's see what we figure out. But after that becomes stale and you're no longer productive, take a break, work away for something for a while, or just watch stupid cartoons, go to sleep, and then come back to it again and, and, and give it another shot. I think that kind of uh, uh, session, SRA principle for idea generation and work is, is a good one. Yeah, and um, we'll be sure to get into our topic soon because the listeners will murder me for wasting this much time not talking about <laughs> lifting and eating. But what you said about returning to that outline and adding things to it on an ongoing basis, um, you know, this is something I've been thinking about recently that, you know, there's this big debate about whether one should follow their passion or should they just go down the more practical route and pick something that is practical and get really good at that discipline. And over time, they will develop a passion for it anyway. And I've had a long period where I was a proponent to the latter thought process. But lately, my thinking has been that when you're passionate about something, uh, I think these are exactly the kinds of extra miles you will take, in your case with the book chapters, that most people wouldn't do. Like most people would just send that outline, would think that, oh, finally I'm done, I can chill and do the things I like doing. But in your case, your brain remained on the topic, I guess, because you're fired up about it and you actually care. So 
How do you think about this question of, you know, should you follow your passion or should you just pick something that is practical and hope that you can develop a passion for it over time? So how do you think about this personally? Is that like a choosing your career question? Yeah, in a sense, sort of, yeah. I have a, a high degree of misgiving about much of the discussion or uh, centered around that sort of thing. Um, a lot of the discussion about career prospects and the type of intellectual work you should do and the social dynamics are uh, very ignorant of psychometrics. There's a real big problem in much social discussion about these sorts of things in which people either want to hear things that are sort of disruptive and counterculture and for that reason cool and oh, I bet you never thought of it this way. Uh, and there's another group of people or sometimes the same people that want to think of things um, as, you know, like – uh, you know, it, it, it has to be challenging, uh, it has to be real world, you know, you're a dreamer. And, you know, if it's not real world, it's not good. It's probably not true. And there's not sort of room for a lot of nuance there. Uh, so um, I think a lot of that type of stuff is very poorly researched. Um, I hate to be someone that brings this up. I suppose, well, don't suppose I hate it that much. You know, the replication crisis in psychology and a variety of other sciences uh, I've been yelling and screaming at the top of my lungs about shit, shit for years. Uh, you need multiple, 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 many, many, many studies to confirm a phenomenon which is worth even considering as a basis of action versus just hypothesis, right? So someone says, hey, you know, I heard that doing things that are boring but that are practical, you will eventually develop a passion for them. Like, okay, so what is the basis of that? Well, this, this one, like, this one guy wrote a book about it and he cited one study. okay. Did a study get replicated? Like, no, I don't think so. Like, well, it's just fucking hypothesis. It's as good as a fucking guess, pretty much. So um, I think it's not really up for debate that people who are working on their passions are, are infinitely more, not infinitely, as a, as a order of magnitude more productive than people who are not, right? Um, I, if I if I would were, to, were to run a business, and in some sense I do, was simply uninterested in hiring people that are not passionate. Uh, they're you know like if you give me a person who's passionate, a person who's not, I'll hire the passionate person every single time. Now, does that mean that everything in your area of remote passion is going to be free of rote work that you don't like? No, absolutely not. So in some sense, you have to do the boring work, uh, but it, it, should it be as much related to your passion as possible? Yes. So so for example, you know, should you follow your passion? to becoming um, uh, like a literal butterfly. Like I just wanted to be a butterfly my entire life. I hate having four limbs. I want six and I want fucking wings, all that shit. Uh, no, because it's fucking ridiculous, right? You're not going to make any money becoming a butterfly. The you know mechanics of becoming a butterfly are just you know, 50 or 60 years before artificial intelligence can make you into a butterfly anyway. So stupid, very impractical, pure passion, zero practicality, right? And then there's the other end of the spectrum, which is, you know, you're a sufficiently intelligent person, uh, Abel, for example. You, you clearly have the wherewithal to become a corporate accountant or a lawyer or a, a manager in an international business firm. You know, you could work like 80 hours a week and you make very good money and it's very practical, logical work. You'd probably have sort of lingering, intrusive thoughts of suicide, <laughs> but whatever, you know, it's impractical to kill yourself because you can't generate further income doing that. So you just keep at it. Right. And, and that sort of advice, I don't think is, is really good life advice in a dynamic global economy in which, you know, there are as many jobs as damn near as there are people. And there's a huge demand for all sorts of things. So what I would say my sort of uh, proposed uh, action for that problem is if you're finding yourself in need of uh, a career choice, whatever time in your life you feel that that's necessary to make, I would uh, check the grandiose scope 
of available careers. And I would check your passion of what you're passionate about generally and specifically and try to make as close of an alignment between the two. So, for example, you know, you really like legal structures. You're fascinated by them. You love arguing and you, you love being technically correct and you love reading. Uh, then, you know, a lawyer might sound like a fucking dream job. And to a lot of people, it really is. And I guarantee you the best lawyers fucking love law. They wake up for that shit. They live for that shit. Um, if you love training people and helping people with their diets, it's a huge passion of yours, then you can make a shitload of money and help an unbelievable number of people doing exactly that in a variety of avenues. So I think when people say, you know, don't follow your passions, be practical because eventually it'll be your passion. But, you know, uh, boy, oh boy, are there fucking literal billions of people who do work that they're very good at that are not passionate about it at all and rather fucking slip their own wrists. Oh, my God. Like, I can't even believe that is a, is a thing. Like, I, I have many friends who are involved in very high echelon corporate law, and it's just, they're looking for any way out <laughs> possible, like rats on a fucking ship. And they're very good at their jobs, right? So it's, it's absolute nonsense to say that anything you were good at you'll be good at for a long time. You'll be passionate about either. Jesus Christ. There's tons of wrestlers that win state championships, go to college wrestling. And as soon as wrestling is done, they literally never step on foot on a mat again. They hated it their entire lives. Just happen to be fucking good at it. Right. Um, on the other hand, being a dreamer and people saying, just follow your passion, man. Well, if your passion does not offer any valuable goods and services to other people, you will not be remunerated in any sort of income and your life will be, you know, giant poverty stricken artistic mess. <laughs> uh, so I think that it, it's not super hard to find an intersection between the two. So I would say the answer is to find that intersection and be as productive as you can. Damn. Microphone drop. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that made sense. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it sure did. And, um, You've been the things you were saying were along the lines of how I was thinking about recently. And just like any idea, you can take it to the extreme and make it look stupid. Uh, but if you apply some sort of reason to it, then what comes out of it will actually make some sense. So uh, for the people who have been slipping their wrists so far because we didn't talk <laughs> about training stuff, what does it take to become an advanced lifter? So uh, as we know, when you're a newbie lifter, which by the way, I would uh, define as the stage at which you will make gains almost regardless of what you do, um, the barrier of entry to become an intermediate lifter is relatively low. And when you're at that point, you know, things will start becoming a bit more challenging. You need to be a bit smarter about what you're doing, which by the way, I think is uh, the point at which a lot of people who have no idea what they're doing will claim that they have reached their genetic potential. Sure. <laughs> but becoming an advanced lifter, we don't see quite as many guys getting there. I mean, we see many of these people getting stuck at a certain level of muscle development, that their lifts don't really change anymore. So we will tease out a couple of things here. But if you had to pick an overarching theme here, what would you say is it that prevents guys from getting to the advanced stage? Well, Abel, if I may, can I offer a potential definition of what it means to be an advanced lifter? Yeah, please. Great. So uh, in my view, um, and I've actually, I think, formally outlined this at least in one place, a beginner lifter is somebody that can make gains without giving much of anything any thought. Okay, They just simply execute some sort of diet, some sort of training, and they make gains, like thoughtless gains. Like if you come up to someone in the gym and you're like, what do you do for biceps? They're like, ah, I don't know, it's different shit, but I make good gains. You're like, sweet, you're a beginner. And you could be lifting for 10 years and be a beginner in that sense, right? Um, then intermediate, uh, in my definition, is when you have to start uh, organizing your training to some 
significant extent, you have to start getting your training thought and you have to be operating at least in the realm of good basic principles in order to consistently experience gain. So here's what I mean. If you are, uh, if you exit the precipice of uh, the beginner sort of area and you enter the intermediate phase and you never give lifting any thought, that will probably be the time when you hit your first plateau, right? And so there's a bunch of shit on YouTube, dumbass motherfuckers that shouldn't be speaking in fucking human words. So talking about plateau busting programs, dumb shit like that. But they're onto something in the sense that plateaus are a very real thing and most people hit them uh, for the, the following fundamental reason. They never thought about shit. They just did stuff. And the plateau occurred, which is kind of a call to arms to actually think about stuff. It's okay, I've reached a plateau with my current lifting. Operation number one, what is my current lifting, right? Because like somebody who's trying to help you with a plateau, like if ever somebody contacted you and were like, hey, I've had a plateau, your number one, I can probably tell you this. Let me know if I get this wrong. Somebody tells you they have a plateau, your number one question to them at first is going to be like, so what are you doing? Is that correct? Certainly. Right. So like people who have never thought about what they were doing now, by definition, beginners, by the way, uh, you know, whether or not it's eight year beginner, right, or or six months beginner, uh, they're going to have to think about it. They're going to think about it and then they're going to have to do. So point number one is think about what you've done, tabulate it and sort of form some kind of an idea. This is my volume. This is my sort of intensity. This is what I'm eating. This is how much I'm sleeping, blah, blah, blah. And then in some way or another, they're going to have to take that sort of Bayesian circle and intersect it with the Bayesian circle of shit that works based on principles, <laughs> right? And they might find that their Bayesian circles are already pretty well intersected. And then, you know, that, that kind of a problem that they have to become uh, advanced pretty quick. But a lot of times they'll find out that there's not much intersection between the fundamental principles and what they've been doing. And they've just been going off newbie gains. And then what they're going to do is say, okay, here's the principles that I'm doing wrong. And here's what I'm actually doing. Let me align these two. Uh, and then boom, all of a sudden you get good gains. But notice that is the definition of an intermediate. A person who has to apply some intellectual rigor of the basic principles, at least, to try to make gains. We can put it another way in a shorter definition. Gains are no longer automatic. When gains are no longer automatic and you actually have to think about shit, that, you know, the shit being that, you know, scientific principles of strength training kind of shit, right? Like, oh, am I, is my training specific enough? Is it overloading enough? Uh, is there fatigue management somehow in play? And on the nutritional side, like calories, macros, blah, 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 just the base. If you have to think about that stuff and your training is no longer just automatic, you are officially an intermediate. Now, advanced is the next definition. Sorry, it took me so long to get to this, but I think all of this is probably pretty productive uh, to talk about. Um, advanced is when you no longer make gains unless you align many of the training and diet principles consistently in order. And if you don't do that, you don't make gains. So for example, an intermediate can miss a couple nights of good sleep, still hit PRs. They won't be crazy PRs, but they'll be PRs. They can, you know, eat three meals a day, sometimes, sometimes two, sometimes six, and add muscle, add weight, so on and so forth. An advanced individual has to lift at their home gym. If they don't have their belt, they're not hitting PRs. If they don't have their weightlifting shoes, they're not hitting PRs. If they don't get their, you know, four to six meals a day, if they don't get their average nights of sleep, they are not hitting PRs. They are not making short or long-term progress. So basically advanced means you need a pretty fine-tuned alignment to make any gains whatsoever, right? So just a real quick recap, beginner, gains just come. Intermediate, you got to think about shit for the first time in your life. 
advanced, you have to have your ducks in a row to make any gains at all. We can make the further clarification that almost always beginners have the best gains, intermediates have the second best gains, and advanced, even if they do everything correctly, the gains will be small. But I think that is secondary to the idea of you know, how much input do you have to make. And, and here's why this is important. Somebody may look at a bodybuilder who's 200 pounds, has been training for five years, is jacked out of their mind. They may actually be looking at a beginner. And you know you're looking at a beginner when you talk to them and you ask them about stuff and you realize they don't know any of the real basic principles, nor do they care to follow them. They just have really good genetics and they sort of train hard and they kind of eat food, right? You know you're talking to an intermediate when the advanced stuff is not something they really care about. They might know about it, but they don't apply it. And they have really good gains just kind of, you know, doing a little bit of fuckery, but mostly sticking to the plan. They know they can't really fuck around and they know their gains are going to be amazing, but they have to have an organized plan. It just doesn't have to be detailed. An advanced individual is one who has to have their ducks in a row in order to make really good gains, or sorry, in order to make any gains. And if one of the bigger ducks slips up, they don't make any gains at all. In a sense, this means none of us ever really want to be advanced. Advanced level is foisted upon you at some point, and then you have to deal with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's beautifully said. Uh, yeah, do you want to go on? <laughs> sure. So so now that we have like my advanced definition, I can potentially address or, you know, able if it's your, it's your podcast, you can take this wherever you want. What we can talk about is, okay, if you make it to advanced, like, uh, so, so, so basically like we can ask, how do you know you've made it to advanced? And it's actually a really simple answer for that one. You just train long enough and you will be advanced. Um, but how can you tell you've made it to advanced? And then how do you honor properly the advanced training condition? And, and so in some sense, that changes your original question from how do you make it to advanced to how do you, when you arrive at advanced, do you still make gains? Does that make sense? Because a lot of people, when they get to advanced, they think that's it. This is, this is the plateau. This is the furthest I'll ever go. But it turns out advanced people make great gains over a long time. They're just going to be slow. But you've got to do some real important things when you're advanced to continue to make gains. Does that make sense? Great. Great. So uh, let's touch on some training stuff first. So Maybe let's not focus on the actual methods just yet, because at the end of the day, some amazing physiques have been built with, you know, very different training protocols in terms of how they program and tinker with the different variables. So let's talk about the variables themselves first. So what are the fundamental big picture things that need to be in place for anybody who wants to reach the advanced level? Boy, boy, do I have a hookup. I hate talking about methods anyway. I could never talk about methods again and be just fine. I'm perfectly fine talking about general principles. <laughs> so um, I don't even think my training methods are all that great. I don't know. Should I do – like I hate posting videos on Instagram. People are like, why do you do this? Why do you do that? I'm like, ah, man, like, you're giving me too much credit. Like why do you lateral raise like this? And I'm like, I don't know. It's just how I fucking lateral raise. Like why don't you dip your pinkies up? I'm like, ah. <laughs> and I'll tell you when my delts get small. But <laughs> so, you know, uh, so, so here's the deal. Uh, excellent question. So really the question is, when you're an advanced individual and you want to keep making progress, how do you approach training? Well, the easiest answer I can give, and I can expand on this absolutely, is you have to check every single major principle box. Number one, specificity. I'll, as I go through these, I'll talk about exactly what you should be checking at minimum. Specificity. Is your training tailored to get you what you want or you say you want? And to what extent is it tailored for other things? For example... An intermediate can focus on powerlifting and bodybuilding at the same time and see a large measure of increase in both. An advanced individual like Eric Helms, for example, who has powerlifted and bodybuilding, needs to focus specific phases on specific tasks. You'll never see Eric Helms preparing for a powerlifting meet and a bodybuilding meet at the same time. I believe he had done that when he was an intermediate, but he will tell you now that that is not a good idea. So will almost every very good powerlifter or bodybuilder. If you go to a USAPL 
you know, nationals top ranker and be like, hey, you ever done a bodybuilding meet and a powerlifting? You, you, would you like to do a bodybuilding show and a powerlifting meet in the same week? They're going to look at you like you're saying a joke because you really are because that's a great violation of the principle of specificity. You would think that's obvious, but it's not for many people. So they're sort of trying to serve two or three masters at the same time. A lot of times as an intermediate, people will, you know, they'll recreationally they'll play a sport, they'll do powerlifting and they'll do bodybuilding and they'll say, oh man, I'm really starting to not make super great gains. So one of the first things you do is look at the principle of specificity. What do you want to get good at? Let's say, okay, bodybuilding. Are you okay with just getting better at bodybuilding, being stable at powerlifting for the next six months? They'll say, um, okay, yes. Okay, great. Now you have to go through your whole training program and make sure your way of overloading, your way of fatigue managing, the kind of variation you use, SRA, et cetera, all the other principles are aligned to bodybuilding purposes. Does that make sense? Yeah, certainly. Sweet. So that's specificity. The next one is overload. Are you overloading first in the direction that specificity demands for your out, uh, for your outcome goal that you want? And also, are you overloading sufficiently? So uh, someone could say, you know, man, I'm like, I really want to be good at bodybuilding. Say, okay, uh, you know, are you overloading? And they'll say, I guess. And like, okay, are you training sufficiently hard? And they may or may not be. Are you training with a sufficiently high volume? Like, is your volume above your minimum effective volume and below your maximum recoverable most of the time, right? Not everyone in bodybuilding uses these terms. As a matter of fact, most people don't. Uh, changing, I guess more people are using them now. But, you know, everyone, pre there's, there's nobody that really disagrees with the idea that, like, look, if you train below your minimum effective volume, you simply by definition won't make gains. If you train way too much all the time, you won't make gains. So do you know your MEV and MRV? Right. And again, you don't have to formally know them, but you just at least have to have a feeling of like, okay, like 15 sets for back is good for me. If I do like 10 sets, I just don't grow. And if I do 20 sets, I just don't recover. Right. So figuring out those volume uh, levels, uh, uh, making sure your intensity is appropriate to your goal. For example, if you're bodybuilding and you're doing 95% 1RM singles, Jesus Christ, that is not overloading for hypertrophy in the least because it's not sufficiently voluminous. On the other hand, if you're doing sets of like 50, you know, leg extensions or something like that, or you're doing shitloads of cardio, like a running upstairs, like again, that is, you know, insufficiently intense and you could do with more intensity and less volume. So you have to align your overload in, in order for it to be uh, accurate or sort of send you into the direction of the kind of adaptations you want. Here's another really big one. This is huge. Fatigue management is the next principle. Are you uh, monitoring your training volume so that you're not doing too much? Number one, a fatigue management. Number two, are you engaging in deloads occasionally? Are you aware that fatigue accumulates? And do you, every now and again, either auto-regulated fashion, through a pre-planned fashion, or the best is a combination of both, doing something to mitigate it? You know, like intermediates can sort of like kind of just deload every now and again, and sometimes they just have a bad week and take the rest of it off and make decent gains. Advanced people, if an advanced person doesn't know what deloading is, they're either going to be hurt a lot or just making not a lot of gains compared to what they could. So most advanced people know what an intentional break in training is, Right. Uh, another thing about fatigue management is, are you getting sufficient sleep? Are you getting sufficient nutrition, et cetera, to support your training volumes and prevent fatigue from getting too high? And and I know that's, uh, you know, not a training answer, but it's very related to training, right? Um, after fatigue management, we go on, you know, to the other principles that, you, you know, that could take a while to get through them. But, you know, there's variation. Are you varying things uh, appropriately? Are you developing too much staleness? Are you using too much variation? Um, SRA, is your training frequency reflective of how often you really should be training? Right? For example, 
you know, if you're an intermediate, uh, especially if you're a beginner, you could train your biceps once a week and they'll grow. If you're advanced, boy, oh boy, unless you have radically giant biceps, just take that long to recover, um, then you probably need to be training them multiple times a week, right? Um, uh, so, and, and uh, SRA could be t- taken too far. Like if you're a beginner, you could do whole body workouts every single day. If you're really advanced, uh, that might not, you know, that might set up a situation where your joint recovery just doesn't allow that sort of thing to happen. Uh, and then phase potentiation. Do you have a phasic structure to your training? Some kind of phasic structure. Here's a really good example of that. Um, as an intermediate, you could recomp still pretty decently, maybe. So that, that means like you sort of have a phase of training that's kind of just one phase. Eat clean, you lift, and you sort of gain muscle. And you haven't been losing fat for a while, but you're sort of gaining and not getting any fatter. Advanced athletes will realize, like as bodybuilding the example or hypertrophy is the example, that you have to get dedicated phases of gaining and dedicated phases of losing fat. And there's going to be a big difference between those two phases and they can't be run at the same time. And of course, last but not least, uh, and this is really, I think, ties the whole thing together, is the last training principle is individualization. Do you know what the difference is, what's good for you and what's good for other people? And actually, a bigger question is, do you know what's good for you? Like someone could come up to me and be like, Were you ever, are you ever going to try German volume training for your back? My answer is going to be an unequivocal fuck you. Or I should say it's a little mean, right? No. Why not? Because German volume training, whatever, like 20 sets per week is exceeding my back MRV substantially. My back MRV is like 15 to 18 sets per week maybe, right, if I'm training hard. So it would just be pointless for me to go that high. Right? So individualization also means a connection with various exercises and understanding of their technique, how they affect you, if they hurt your joints or if not. You know, an intermediate plays around with various lifts and it's like, yeah, I've been experimenting with XYZ squats and I've been experimenting with hack squats, I've been experimenting with this and it feels okay, but I don't know. And that's totally cool. That's a part of being an intermediate. A beginner, by the way, just does fuck all random shit or just the same thing for three years and grows anyway. An advanced person knows which exercises affect them well, knows which ones affect them less well, uh, and, and plans the progressions accordingly, um, and, and is really starting to, for lack of a better term, get finally connected to their body. And maybe one of the ultimate examples of individualization, uh, especially in hypertrophy, is the mind-muscle connection, right? How do you know you're advanced? Do you know what a mind-muscle connection is? And if you don't know that term, can someone explain it to you in 15 seconds and you go, oh, oh, that, yeah, fuck yeah, I know what that is. Who doesn't, right? If someone's like, hey, like, how do your biceps feel during curls? And you're like, I don't know, I just move the weight. You're, you're not advanced, <laughs> right? In the sense of you may be advanced with how little you're gaining, but you're not honoring the advanced condition by doing your best. So a, sort of the ultimate individualization is developing a mind-muscle connection, ultimate in the sense that it's a very good illustration of that principle, is developing the mind-muscle connection in really feeling the, the exercises and thus discovering which exercises you really feel, which are really effective and which you don't, so on and so forth. So all of those principles, you got to pay attention to the more of them you pay attention to, the more you do a good job of the being advanced, the more you step up to the plate, and the more your advanced years are going to be years in which you're like, yep, progress is definitely slower, but shit, I was making it, and I am making it, versus man, as soon as I like lifted for six years, I haven't seen any gains since then. That's the difference between applying the principles like that and not. Yeah, and you just covered a ton of questions I would have had anyways in one answer, so that was amazing. Uh, but one thing I'd like to point out about training, which... You know, it's one of those things that's become a cliche and it's become a cliche because it's absolutely true that perhaps one of the biggest issues with trainees is a lack of consistency and a lack of being methodical. So people love trying out all kinds of different stuff just as a function of being impulsive and maybe the fear of missing out a little bit. So maybe they will read Eric Helms's sample training protocols, which are, of course, you know, logically organized, well put together. Most people will be able to progress on them. 
but, but then they come across one of your hypertrophy articles, and that also sounds very reasonable. Then they jump on that, and then they come across some Martin Burkhans stuff, and so they start doing some very low-volume reverse pyramid training, and they change so many things so frequently, which might be an issue by itself, but like you mentioned, the biggest problem perhaps is that they don't have a baseline that they can look at and quantify its efficacy or identify the things that worked and the things that didn't work uh, because the variables just change all the damn time. Right. Oh, man. Yeah, that's a great point. So first of all, you don't know what's working because you never have sufficient time to test it. Second of all, you never actually allow enough application of something for it to even work. So there's not even anything to test because you're switching things so fast. Your body's just experiencing novelty too quickly. Um, it's like trying to learn a language by going to every different country of Europe once a day. Like you're just going to learn dick. It's going to sound cool. <laughs> you know, you're going to be able to have a lot of cool Instagram pictures. But you're not going to learn how to speak shit. You got to stay in each country for longer to learn stuff. Um, and then you know, there, there's definitely uh, the tracking problem. And uh, here's another problem. So the individualization thing, you all of those, remember individualization isn't so much of a principle of itself, it just modifies all the others. Like what is the individual constraints of your specificity? What is the individual constraints of how you best respond to overload? What is the individualization of how much fatigue management you need? Not whether you need it or not, but how much. When you're an advanced individual, I'll give you a quick example with the volume landmarks. One of the hallmarks of being advanced is that your minimum effective volume and your maximum recoverable volume are a lot closer than they used to be, closer to each other. So for example, whereas when you started training, your minimum effective volume was one set per muscle group per week, and your maximum recoverable volume was perhaps you know six to eight sets per week per body part, um, when you were intermediate, it could actually uh, be a situation where your minimum effective volume is eight sets per week, and your maximum recoverable is 20 sets per week. Well, that's a 12 set difference. So if you tried Eric Helms' program that did, you know, uh, 14 sets a week, if you tried Mike Isertel's program, which did 18 sets a week, and if you tried Martin Birkin's program, which did eight sets a week, all of them could work, right? Because they're all in that window. And, and, and you could say like, yeah, I've tried them all. They kind of work fucking, I'm just going to like, and you know, there's that dog shit usually, uh, a fucking just like pathetic out of being like, oh, just, just do whatever personal preference. Like I, that shit's been pissing me off lately. It's a little bit of a rant. I'm mildly exaggerating it. But people say like, oh, you know, here's the data on this and that. But if you don't know, just do whatever you prefer. Like we can usually do a little bit better than personal preference. And personal preference is something you do all the time anyway. Like I, I'd much rather prefer, you know, good advice than saying like, oh, okay, well, I don't really know anything more. So just do whatever you like, right? The thing is like, if your MEV is eight and your MRV is 20, it's not just pick any volume between there and do what you like. Although that would work to some extent, I think the best thing is to periodize your volume logically between all of those factors, between between those two uh, extremes in a progressive manner. But that's not here nor there. Here, here's the real conundrum. When you are advanced, okay, there is a good chance that your MRV, it could look something like 18 sets per body part per week, and your minimum effective volume could look like 14, okay? So all of a sudden, all of a sudden, uh, Eric Helms's program uh, barely works at all. Okay, because it's right at your MAV. Mike Isertel's program at 14, uh, 14 sets a week for Eric Helms. At 18 sets, Mike Isertel's program just overtrains you all the time. So you're like, oh, fuck, that doesn't work. And then uh, Martin Burkhead's program is just a maintenance program. It's eight sets a week. It doesn't even fucking touch a shit. So the real thing is, program hopping for beginners is, I guess, okay, because they just get a lot of cool experiences and they grow either way. Program hopping for intermediates is definitely not the best way to go, but you'll see results. Program hopping for advanced is really dumb because you will hop skip your dumbass across the entire pond, so to speak, 
of your actual adaptive window. So being advanced is about finding your adaptive window and training inside of it, not using random programs that some of them might by fucking sheer chance land in there, but some just land completely outside of it. So when someone says like, hey, I tried 20 sets per week, like you said, I'm like, I never fucking said that. That was just an example. What you got to do is find your own minimum effective volume, find your own maximum recoverable, find your own intensity ranges that you like, find your own frequencies that seem to work best for you, note them, and methodically alter them slowly, one at a time, over time, to find what really works best for you. Not try random people's fucking programs. Um, and that's 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 really what separates, in a, in a large sense, uh, intermediate from advanced. Is advanced, your window of adaptation just isn't that great. And you have to find the stuff that works for you, not fucking programs here and there. Yeah, and I think uh, while you know certain nuances of your training become important at some point, like... Uh, picking exercises that suit you biomechanically or what progression model you choose. I think the mindset that you need to adopt as you become more advanced is, is also important to mention because when you are in the beginning of your journey, you look bigger week to week or month to month. Uh, your lifts are certainly going to go up really fast, but that stuff runs its course pretty fast. Like at some point, you need to come to terms with the fact that you just won't be hitting PRs in your lifts like you did when you were training for six months. Like I'm, I'm assuming, Mike, that you don't necessarily see PRs every training session either at this point. Well, I hit PRs every day because I had made a deal with the devil a long time ago. Um, but if the devil's not around for you to make deals with or you don't have sufficient leverage to make that deal, yeah, the more advanced you get, the more infrequent PRs are, and that's okay. The thing is, um, is people have these often arbitrary notions of how often they should be hitting PRs or how strong they should be getting or how much muscle they should be putting on. And when the notions are not arbitrary, when they're arbitrary, they're usually like extreme. Like, you know, I want to like fucking put on 10 pounds of muscle every several months. Like, okay, well, you never did that. So it's never going to happen. Right. A lot of people uh, sort of think that the yield curve for training operates like a yield curve for like a, a career, like a computer programmer. Like when you're a beginner, a computer programmer, uh, computer programming, your efficiency isn't the best it's ever going to be. Like, notice your efficiency is if the best it's ever going to be as your beginner in weight training, right? Um, as you become better at computer programming, you become radically better at, at the gains, right? The gains come in like, you know, the amount of, uh, you know, viable code you could generate per hour per day rises exponentially in the first several months of computer programming. Then it hits like a, a sort of a slower rise, but it'll keep rising for most of your career, just slower and slower. So, I, but, but, you know, in a uh, beginner status, so, so if someone is a computer programmer and they come to training and they make like, they sort of, let's say they add 10 pounds, five pounds of muscle in the first six months, they're sort of thinking like, okay, well, well in the next six months, now that I have my shit dialed in, I'm going to add 10. And it's like, nope, you're just going to add the same five again. And then next year you're going to add two and a half. And they're like, what the fuck? <laughs> right? So uh, the advancements in getting to know yourself and doing the training principles properly usually get outrun by training age. That, that's how important training age really is. So that has to be taken into consideration. So a lot of people are like, well, I should be hitting my stride now. Like, no, you don't understand. There's no stride to hit. Like, you're just going to do your best, but the stride always slows. That being said, you got to figure that out at some point. You can tell it to people, but a lot of times they just have to go through it. And a lot of the stuff with advanced is uh, just do the best job you can and apply the training principles you can as best as you can. Um, monitor your response, auto-regulate, and whatever you get, whatever you get. And, and, and a good, a good sort of uh, measuring stick of progress is okay. Last all of last year, I applied the training principles really well, and I got the following amount of muscle growth: three pounds, let's say. 
The next year, my goal is to get as close as possible to three pounds. I think that's a good goal. If your goal is to gain five pounds, you're fucking insane. It's almost certainly not going to happen, right? If your goal is just get any gains at all, you might be shortchanging yourself. So I think if your goal any one year is to get as close as possible to the goal in the year before, knowing that if you get within 75% of it, you're doing a pretty good job, uh, I think that's a really good way to operate. And I think that's another thing you'll just realize that as an advanced individual, pretty soon you'll get used to getting very small gains and you'll be okay with that. And, and another thing is this, uh, psychologically, it's much nicer knowing that your gains are going to be small, doing a good job, smiling about it, and, and sort of collecting your little coins along the way. And then in five years, you're way more jacked. It's, that's a little better than always thinking you're doing something wildly wrong, program hopping, um, radically shifting your training philosophies, trying crazy shit, um, and still getting the same disappointing results. You know, I, it's, it's always real sad to talk to people that think they're just some kind of revelation away from getting 10 pounds of muscle in six months. You know, Abel, I'm sure you've had some conversations with people. They're like, if I just figure this shit out, I'll be huge. And it's like, dude, that... The people who got huge never figured out a fucking thing. They just started lifting weights and blew up like crazy. Like Jay Cutler gained 50 pounds of muscle in his first year of training from what I understand. Like if that never happened to you, there's probably no revelation. There's just marginal improvements. and That's fine. I think being advanced is a part of it is making peace with that and just trying to do the best within the, the, within the constraints that you're given. Awesome. Awesome. Fantastic. So um, then to touch on some nutrition stuff, I think if I had to pick – the single biggest mistake that intermediate to advanced trainees make is not spending enough time gaining and just uh, trying to stay lean too much and you know freaking out as soon as their ab definition fades the slightest bit. So we had a really amazing bulking debate on this podcast between yourself and Eric Helms, and that was about a year ago. So I'm wondering, in this year's worth of time frame, how have your thinking unfolded uh, when it comes to the caloric surplus that one should aim at to gain muscle? Uh, what's a good trade-off between staying lean enough but still being aggressive enough? So, yeah, uh, how should one go about this? Yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely – I think that like gaining one pound of tissue a month is a bit slow for my liking and I think it has some pretty serious tracking problems with it. But I think gaining two to four pounds of tissue a month, uh, some combination of muscle and fat makes lots of sense. Anything much more than a pound per month or sorry, four pounds per month is probably a bit too fast. Um, but what I'll say is a gaining phase is best when it goes for months. Like, you know, you can throw mini cuts in there and that's fine. Um, but the total gaining phase, including the mini cuts, should be something that lasts for like four to six months with three-ish months to be usually the working minimum. I think theoretically you can gain in just two months, but I really like if someone asked me like, hey, should I gain for between two and four months? What should I do? I say four months, right? I would prefer a steady gain of four months, uh, really hammering, really hitting some PRs. And I would also prefer a stabilization phase after that of at least a month where you continue to get stronger, you sit at that new body weight, and uh, you um, basically some of that muscle settling point changes, so you don't lose a shitload of it afterwards. Um, I think there's no substitute for spending time getting to higher body weights and staying there for a while, and then slowly, carefully whittling away the fat and repeating the process. Um, uh, I've had many conversations with Steve Hall to this extent. 
And, you know, Steve Hall uh, has, is at his heaviest body weight he's ever been now, is in the high 190s. And he kind of can't believe it. <laughs> but the, the real thing is, well, yeah, it makes sense that he's that big because he's been gaining for a long time and it really the muscle's starting to add up. And the PRs are starting to really just be super consistent. You know, his rep PRs are just wild. They're, how do you rep PR way outside of your normal amount? Well, you got a PR for multiple weeks and months on end. And then, you know, if you compare your PRs four months ago to your PRs now, it should be really worlds apart, which means you're worlds apart in muscle. So what I don't like to see people do is do a muscle gain phase that lasts a month, do a fat loss phase that lasts a month, and then go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I, send, I think it sends really mixed messages. It, there might be some problems with preparatory hypertrophy uh, versus actual uh, functional hypertrophy um, or sort of complete hypertrophy that occurs. And what you get from that is no movement of settling points really and a whole lot of nothing. And I'll say this, if you weigh 150 pounds, there's only so jacked you, you can be weighing 150 pounds. At some point, you got to weigh 160 and hold it. At some point, you got to weigh 170, 180, and so on and so forth. How much you weigh is up to you, but if you want to gain significant muscle, you're going to have to take yourself out of the comfort zone. Does that mean you have to get super fat? No, but Eric Helms is actually the one that points out that 15% fat isn't really a hard limit. Something more like 20% seems to be a pretty good consensus that you can gain to 20%, especially if you're not competing for a while or ever, and be just fine. So I think somebody like Eric Helms would say, look, if you start at 10%, you can gain I would say mini cuts are a good idea within that, but you can slowly move over months and months and months to 20% fat and fucking get a lot of muscle out of that process. But if you never move across pretty far body weight ranges and pretty far ranges of body fat, you're just never going to gain a whole lot of muscle. Um, beginners, again, they can recomp. Intermediates can do the slow lean gains bullshit. Um, advanced people we'll know that for them to gain muscle, they have to gain some fat along with it. There's just no other way of doing it. Yeah. So you mentioned mini cuts there. So what would be the minimum amount of time you'd go with a surplus before you'd interrupt it with any sort of deficit period, like two months or three months? What would it be? Two months. Yeah. Yeah. Two months. Um, I think you can get from like 10% fat to like 13% fat and then mini cut back to like 11.5% over three to four weeks, and then go again till you reach 15%, and then sort of mini cut and maintain a little bit to drop some fatigue back to like 13%, and then go up again to 16, 17%, and do that a couple times until you do maintenance. Now you're a little bit fatter. You do like a eight week non mini cut, like a cut cut. Then you do two or three weeks of just low volume training after that cut at roughly 10% fat to just really reduce fatigue, really refresh everything. And then you start gaining again and sort of repeat the process. Am I hugely sold on mini cuts? No, I think they have a value that's very marginal. But I think it's cool uh, and it works and keeps you a little leaner, a little bit more insulin sensitive. It keeps you looking great or better. Um, and it can psychologically remotivate you really well to keep gaining by starving you a little bit and then also letting you be nice and lean, sort of satiate the leanness part of you that's like, okay, I've, I've got my abs back and they're real crisp and okay, fuck, time to get jacked again, right? And also it's, you know, your mini cuts should never make you weaker, but they'll stall your progress on your PRs. You'll still feel like you have momentum, but it'll be curved and you'll be like, ooh, you know, fuck this. No, 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 I want more strength. Like I've been making great PRs and all of a sudden I'm not making them, right? I'm just stable. It's going to sort of reinvigorate your hunger. And it's a cool little variation to inject in the program. I'm not, you know, religious about them. I think that if someone did want to do them uh, almost at all, I'd be totally fine. But if you do them, you know, use them sparingly. 
the ratio of massing to mini cutting should be like three or four to one. It, or, or even greater. It shouldn't be like one-to-one -one, or in some people seemingly like one-to-two. You know, you talk about guys trying to get jacked. What they'll do is they'll gain for a month and they'll cut for two months. And I'm like, I think you have this whole jacked thing backwards. <laughs> so it's, there's definitely some, some mistakes made there. Yeah, and I think the important thing to point out here is um, if you want to go really slow and gain like a pound a month, you can do that. Uh, I'd say a lot of people just don't have the discipline and the willingness to be that meticulous for really extended periods uh, to make that work. But if you can do that, that's great. And you can also go faster. Uh, in, in fact, if you want, you could do a dreamer bulk and get quite fat while you're bulking. Um, I guess that's also fine. It will also have its set of downsides. But one thing that will definitely not work out is chronically under eating and freaking out any time when you see yourself losing a bit of ab definition and, you know, end up spending two thirds of the year cutting. So yeah, that's a really good point. Whatever method you choose, commit to the method for sure. Um, so if you want to go slower, totally fine. If you want to go faster, totally fine. You'll have to deal with the consequences. But if you just any weight you gain, you immediately cut off. Like it's just, it's not going to be a very pleasant thing. I think a lot of the guys that end up getting really big are guys that had gotten previously a little bit fatter for a little longer than they wanted. And it's hard on yourself. Other people will say like, oh, I thought you were a bodybuilder. You know, say shit like that. And then later you got 20 pounds of muscle over them and they're like, oh man, how'd you gain this much muscle? It's like, oh, fuck yourself. You know, like when you were having abs your entire life, I didn't, but I, now I'm way more jacked. That's how it works. Awesome. Great. So um, we covered both training and nutrition. And then the final thing I'd like to touch on is sort of the mental side of things. So, you know, I've heard a quote from someone, I think it was some famous coach, maybe a, a baseball coach or something. Uh, but anyway, he said that what separates top athletes from the mediocre ones is their ability to tolerate doing the same thing over and over again and not get bored and demotivated in the process. So I think this is very applicable to building muscle too, in the sense that a large chunk of this just comes down to patience, perseverance, and not getting attracted by shiny toys all the time. So what would be some things you would give people to avoid the kind of mental staleness that can develop when being in this game for very long? Yeah. So I think that, you know, that's, that's a really good quote. I think the underlying value of that quote is in part to communicate the idea that consistency has to underlie the application of any principles. Um, if you're pouring a glass of orange juice and you want to fill the glass, if you're like spazzing out and moving the bottle around wildly, but only a fifth of the orange juice actually gets into the glass, sort of don't really give a shit that what you wanted was to fill the glass. You're never going to do it. But if you consistently keep the bottle over the, the glass, uh, you know, all of your efforts will be uh, summed up. So it's one of those, when I say an advanced person has to tend to the principles, uh, you could say that the most underlying part of the specificity principle is consistently do what you, what you, what, you know, need, consistently send the signals to grow or to get better. You know, it's really kind of a specificity violation if half the time you're training, but half the time you're not. As, as a total percent of your athletic lifestyle, you're not very specifically involved in growing. So consistency is a, is a really, really big thing. And I think it, it has to be something uh, that is absolutely said uh, as far as how to uh, equip people with the tools. Well, I'll tell you what, I got a couple answers for that. One is a libertarian answer of, look, if you don't like the process of getting jacked, who get, stop trying to get jacked. Who gives a shit? Like, 
you know, the number one absolute leader, 97% of the benefit of being jacked comes from the happiness that the process and the result bring you. If you just don't care enough to be jacked, that you're not willing to do the work, stop trying to be jacked, right? Like, is Bill Gates jacked? Uh, you know, is Donald Trump jacked? Is Barack Obama jacked? Uh, is, you know, Louis Pasteur, was he jacked? No, these, these people are going to be remembered in history and your jacked dumbass is not because, <laughs> you know, there's just tons of more important things. Maybe some of the happiest people you meet was like cursorily familiar with the gym or they go to the gym to exercise and not work out. You know, we judge them like some guy doing something stupid or like on the treadmill, some skinny asshole. And you're like that fucking hippie. Fuck him. He might have a beautiful family, a beautiful home life, a beautiful mental life. And he's the happiest person in the world. And you're a miserable piece of shit who fucking hates being in the gym, but just never gave it any thought and just assumed that that was what's going to make him happy. So the thing is, if, if these questions are so pressing to you, like, oh my God, like, how do I get motivated? Why are you even trying to get motivated for something you don't like to do? It's completely optional. It's completely recreational activity, right? But, you know, if you're in that middle ground where you do want to do it, you are committing to it, it does make you happy, but you still struggle with consistency uh, and adherence, sometimes it helps to pick your outcome goals in a, a concordance with your phase. For example, when you are muscle gaining and you're putting on muscle and fat, you're not going to look better in the mirror week to week. What is going to look good? Your fucking PRs, bro. Your reps and weights are going to be fucking shooting. So focus your mindset on valuing and tracking those PRs, getting value and getting pleasure, getting reward psychology out of being like, man, I wonder how much I'm going to squat next month. Holy shit. This is really cool. And people are like, hey, what do you look like? You're like, I don't really care right now. Right. I'm focused on the PRs. That could give you tons of great motivation and make a very happy journey. On the other hand, Let's say you're very PR-oriented, but you're doing a fat loss phase. And boy, are you asking to just be pissed. Be like, hey, did you hit any PRs? No. Did you hit any PRs? No. Did you hit any PRs? No. Just leave me the fuck alone. I'm withering away over here. Right? But if you shift your focus purposefully when you start fat loss phase, especially once you start to you're, start to look a little better um, during, you know, second uh, the, the, the last two-thirds of a fat loss phase, uh, if you shift your focus to judging yourself by how you're progressing in the mirror, every week you're going to look better and better. And sometimes... Um, uh, Abel, I'm, I'm not sure if you ever, um, please let me know if you've ever been in a situation in a, a fat loss phase where you actually get accelerating motivation the leaner you get. Like the leaner you get, you're like, dude, I'll fucking starve forever if I have to to get leaner. I love the shit. I'm a fucking machine. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, so you're just like, let's see how freaky we can make this shit go. So if you're focused on that and you're like, you know, your lifts are, you know, you're tracking everything, you're doing your best, but let's say you haven't hit really any PRs in three months. Who cares? You're hitting physique PRs. So I think sometimes, you know, focusing on the PRs, and this especially helps with females. I think females sometimes have such trouble massing because of genetic and sociocultural reasons um, that they're going to be like, oh my God, like I'm fatter, I'm fatter, I'm fatter. The scale's bigger, scale's bigger, scale's bigger. My clothes don't fit like I like. My clothes don't fit like I like. My clothes don't fit like I like. Then they burn out of massing. But if they just focused on PRs and focused on how strong they were, they'd be like, wow, fucking muscle gain is great. If somebody just told them, hey, just try to focus on that and just don't worry about all the other stuff. You know what I mean? Like what percent of your life do you spend thinking about how rich you are not compared to Bill Gates? I imagine hopefully zero because that would just be a really stupid thing to think about. What percent of your life do you think about the fact that in 70 or 80 years you're going to die and probably in two generations no one's going to remember you? Man, that's a morbid fucking thing to think about. You can just choose not to think about it and choose to focus on the things that make you happy. And that's not like a willful ignorance. That's just a choice that you can make to align your life in the direction that you want. So when you're muscle gaining, focus on PRs. When you're fat, lose, fat law, losing, <laughs> focus on your appearance and your a a adherence. That's another really cool one. Um, 
looking at adherence like a challenge. They say, I want to see how many meals in a row I can eat perfectly before uh, you know scheduling or something else makes me go off plan a little bit and derive pride from that. Somebody's like, hey, your diet's pretty tough, huh? And you're like, mm, yeah, you could say that, but I've been a fucking machine on it, man, and I'm so proud of myself. I, you know, I'm, I'm two weeks straight. I've been fucking nailing, and I'm a fucking robot. Like to be proud of adherence means you value adherence. Means it's no longer this reluctant challenge, right? Uh, dieting is not a death march where someone else tells you to do it. You have to reluctantly do it. Like you know, when you're on a death march or a fucking you know the Bataan death march in the Philippines, the Japanese are like, hey, you got to walk these fifty miles. You're not like, man, I can't wait to set a PR or walk in as fast as I can. Like, no, it's not your fucking idea. You're probably gonna die. It's awful, right? You do it as reluctantly as possible. Some people treat dieting like that or mass gaining. Like, oh my god, I can't believe I have to eat this food. It's your call. Eat, treat it like a challenge. I want to see how much food I can stuff into myself before I blow up. I want to see how much food I can restrict for myself before I starve to death. I want to see how far I can push myself. That way, adherence gets turned on its face. And all of a sudden, you become almost addicted to adherence, which is fucking amazing because your job is to adhere. And it's now, now here's the thing as soon as the diet is over, and as soon as you have to flip the switch, you have to consciously retool to be like, okay, the diet is over. Now my job is to enjoy life. But listen, how hard is that? Now, all of us are pretty good at doing that. And if you have a job enjoying life, come to Philadelphia. Come hang out with me. Uh, you know what I'm saying? We'll get you fucking uh, sorted out. We're going to show you the good and the bad, uh, et cetera. I don't know what I'm saying. I, please don't come hang out with me. I'm the most boring person in the world. But in any case, like if you have trouble enjoying life, fundamentally, that's a pretty easy problem to solve. If you have trouble adhering to difficult things, it's a harder problem to solve. But choosing to see it as a challenge, something that's beneficial for you, challenging yourself to do it is a lot better than seeing it as a, a burden. That's kind of the perfect word for it. Don't view your adherence as a burden. View it as a beautiful challenge that's going to get you where you want to go. And I think a lot of things can change if you do that. It's something you have to remind yourself to do all the time. But if you remind yourself enough, it starts to become more habitual. Beautiful. Well, Mike, uh, you were on fire today. And if your speed of speech and thinking and the amount of time you stutter was that of the average person, then this podcast would have taken three hours. But <laughs> this way, we could cover everything just over an hour, which is amazing. <laughs> so thank you so much for dropping all this knowledge. So a random question to the end, which I wanted to ask in the rapid fire round in the beginning, but um, do you ever think about the future of fitness and how things will be like in like 100 years from now? Because, you know, we talk about how to optimize training and what to eat to not be hungry. But, you know, maybe one day we'll just have these amazing zero calorie foods that will taste just like the non-zero calorie version. And we'll just pop in a pill that will completely eliminate hunger. So going from obese to 5% body fat will be basically just a matter of deciding to do that. So um do you think about how redundant what we do will become one day? Oh, all the time. I think about that all the time. And what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I want government to create regulations that make fitness advances illegal so that all of us can continue to have pointless jobs that leech away at society and burden other people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, that happens in a lot of other, other industries. Um, what do I think about it? I think that uh, if uh, enlightenment values um, – freedom, free markets, free minds, etc. continue to progress, that uh, the systematization of human knowledge will continue to increase like it is now, the scope of knowledge will continue to increase, and the percent of problems that we consider solved problems or that have very relatively inexpensive, elegant solutions, something like penicillin for the average bacterial infection, uh, will become exponentially greater. Um, I uh, To say that I look forward to that day is the biggest understatement. Um, in the entire world. 
when the entire field of exercise can be replaced by one pill, I will cry tears of scientific capitalist joy like you've never seen. Because I can finally put the sword under the ground of the giant fucking problem of people not being healthy, not being in the shape they want, solved with beautiful, miraculous science. I can't think of a better thing. I don't give a fuck how many trainers are out of jobs. Actually, I do. I hope all trainers lose their jobs so they can go on to be a huge workforce to solve the next batch of problems. Are we fucking running out of problems? Let me know when we start running out of problems. We're not. Half of fucking Africa is dying all the fucking time, starving to death. We could fucking not have personal trainers and have people go over there and help fucking starving people in need. How about that? Clean up the water supply. How about make more cures for more medicines? How about anything else that's not fucking as ridiculous as fitness? We could all be doing that if fitness was a solved problem through technology, so on and so forth. So I look forward to those continual expansions. I think that's going to be a fucking beautiful thing because, it, you know, elegant, cheap solutions uh, are awesome, right? And if you're not looking for elegant, cheap solutions, I'm not so sure you're very familiar with the term progress. Um, uh, to add to that, on a slightly more esoteric note, um, I think that uh, at some point, possibly within the next 50 years, hopefully, um, that uh, physical human bodies will be a, a, an alternative and the other alternative will be to have uh, either true AI or brain emulations inside of robotic bodies or uh, digital clouds. And then at that point, fitness might be sort of like, uh, you know, sort of a moot point. Um, it's like, who's going to tree, who's going to clean the coal factories? It's like, well, we're not going to have coal factories. Like, oh, wow, that whole question seems stupid, right? It's like, who's going to train people? Well, when people are sort of digital abstractions, <laughs> it might not be a thing. Um, so the technological singularity, if anyone's curious about that, just Google Ray Kurzweil, technological singularity, uh, uh, you know, don't do it late in the evenings. It'll blow your fucking mind. You won't be able to sleep. But uh, hopefully that's coming. But even if you know that is hundreds of years off, or for some reason never happens, I think in the incremental uh, advance of, uh, of any industry, fitness included, just means that more people get cheaper solutions, better and faster. And the people who are displaced by that in the work environment can go on to solve problems uh, that uh, you know will continue to occur unless we start running out of problems. It, it, here's actually this is a self this is a circular self closing argument. Um, if there there's a problem with people in the workforce, there's insufficient jobs because we've started to run out of problems. Um, notice what I said: we've started to run out of problems. We're living in fucking paradise. Mission accomplished. Heaven enjoy. That's it. Mic drop. Yeah, so just before paradise happens, let's continue our mission to solve problems like getting Dean and Jack, I guess. Totally. By the way, sorry, before someone preempts this and asks this question on YouTube or some shit, uh, automation, yes, it is coming. AI, yes, it is coming. Um, uh, will it displace people in jobs? There's a variety of really good economic reasons to think that mass job displacement will not occur uh, on the net balance, that uh, opportunities will simply be transferred. And by the way, when we have true full AI that can replace every human at every job, we have an infinite number of workers that do not charge a fee. And again, paradise. So ta-da, self-solving problems. So people who are against AI and all that stuff and against technological advancement and automation uh, haven't thought the problem through sufficiently well or insufficiently educated economics. Sorry, I had to put that in there before someone preempted me. Uh, yeah, don't worry, because uh, they will be just cursing me for asking all the dumb shit. So. dumb shit. <laughs> uh, all right, Mike. So thank you so much for taking the time today. So just please let people know where they can catch up on all the cool stuff you have coming up. Cool. Where, when are you releasing this? It might be this week, actually. Uh-huh. Sweet. Well, all right. So... 
I can be found at RP Strength on Instagram, at RP Strength, at RP Dr. Mike on uh, RP Dr. Uh, M-I-K-E on Instagram. Mike is on Facebook, uh, renaissanceperiodization.com on the old internet, but nobody can type that in, so just go to RP Strength and follow the link. Um, and I post a bunch of cool stuff all the time, so maybe you can follow me there. Uh, so I think the first time I'm throwing this on the podcast, the artificial intelligence revolution is well with us. Um, uh, I have poured much of my knowledge of dieting into the RP Diet app, which is now available for a free trial and eventual purchase on the iTunes store. So if you are an Apple user, uh, and you know for what all that's worth, you can go to the iTunes app store and search RP Diet and play around with an automated diet generator and coach uh, all in your pocket. And uh, give that a shot and let us know what you think. And Android is coming in a week and a half, two weeks. So then there'll be an Android equivalent uh, that you can look around for. Uh, still in the very early version, uh, early version. Uh, this app is uh, multiple updates are already planned. Um, and it'll be getting better and better. So see if you like it. And if you don't like it, uh, let us know how we can make it better. Awesome. Great. So that sounds exciting. And uh, once it's out for Android, I'll be checking it out for sure. So... Uh, Dr. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time today. It was an absolute pleasure. As always, thank you so much, Evan. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode and liked what you heard. And if you did, then I think you'd definitely love our SSD training and nutritional course that we recently put out with Burger Fuggerly. This program not only contains a 12-week phasic training program that you can use to time efficiently and safely build the best body you can, but also gives you four plus hours of video lectures about managing your nutrition and lifestyle to not only look good, but feel and perform optimally. So if this sounds interesting to you, then go ahead and check out sustainableselfdevelopment.com. And of course, to not miss out on future episodes like this, subscribe to the podcast and you'll be up to date on everything we'll be putting out. So thank you for hanging around up until now and see you next time.